Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Hey, today, yes, today's episode. I hope I don't make too many enemies. I've entitled it Step Away from the Enneagram. I've been wanting to actually putting off making this podcast for a long time. Not because I'm anti-Enneagram, I'll get to that in a minute, but because of hmm, my experience with its limitations, abuses, and I think um, propensity to lock people in. So I want to talk about it. And I want to talk about it really as a lay person. I'm not an expert. I don't have a uh, some sort of um, certification in Enneagram work. I have not been to Enneagram conferences. I've only read and studied and taken tests and talked about the Enneagram like most people I know. So that's really my experience with it. And I want to try to talk about it in the broadest possible terms. Like, how do we hold something like the Enneagram? What place does it serve? And let me start off, I guess, in the most, most mythic way I can. Across the lintel, the doorframe of the oracle in Delphi, there was an inscription, and the inscription said, Know thyself, which is fascinating. And I've been to Delphi. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's one of the most amazing places in Greece. It's high up in the mountains. It, it seems like it would be nearly impossible to get to in antiquity. So you had to really struggle if you were going to go see the oracle. And the oracle, it's interesting. I don't want to do a whole thing on the oracle, but one of the realities with visiting her, just from this sign, is that it was not like uh, the magic eight ball that your kids have, that you shake and you get a little answer back. Apparently, that interacting with the oracle wasn't that simple. If you, in order to really, really ask... What's going on in the world? What's going on with me? To struggle with the big Greek questions of fate and destiny and the divine and nature and chance and to seek some insight from the oracle, some hint, some whiff of the divine, you couldn't walk in the door without some self-knowledge. You couldn't walk in the door without having done some work, I guess we would say in contemporary terms, without knowing thyself. And it's just not that simple. God, I wish it was that way. Um, sort of like, uh, I don't know, back when, uh, in, in, and I, I mean this in, in a complimentary way, in my innocence, in late adolescence, early adolescence, when I just wanted God to tell me what to do with my life. Like, give me the plan, give me the answer, show me the way send me a message in a bottle and I, I'll just open it up and, and follow the plan, so to speak. Reveal to me your will, I would have said, something like that. Well, that, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that desire. I mean, it, in, in some ways, it's a, it's a desire that expresses some humility. 
I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm to do in this world. Help me. Um, but to bypass and go around the difficult psychological or psycho-spiritual work of knowing thyself, who am I? What do I need to take responsibility for? Uh, what are my uh, hang-ups and issues and you know, sub-personalities and complexes and that psychological language? Um, what are my issues? It, both are needed. In other words, the longing for some insight um, has to, the parallel track is that of self-knowledge. And even St. Anthony, I love the Desert Fathers. Uh, one of the big surprises in my life, I, I moved to Israel. I talk a bit about this in Bitten by a Camel, but I moved to Israel largely because I was interested in Judaism. And by the time I left Israel and was enrolled in the Hebrew University, studying comparative religion, I was much more interested in Christianity and early Christianity, particularly the Desert Fathers. I had an obsession. In fact, I don't know, one of the regrets of my life is uh, having not gone all the way and done a PhD in some of this work, because I find it so fascinating. I even had an advisor that was willing to work with me because I, I was starting to see uh, a kind of, um, I wouldn't have used this language then, but sort of archetypal, metaphoric, and symbolic relationship between the Desert Fathers and Rabbinic Judaism in, in terms of stories, images, uh, parables, even disposition at times, they seem to have a kind of conversation going on. So if you're like a PhD person, go ahead and take that one. Um, I think there's there's a lot of fruitful ground there, particularly in in um, in the Mishnah, in Avot, the fathers, and then um, in the Egyptian desert literature, like St. Anthony and others. Anyway, St. Anthony is asked by a little delegation, what should we do? What's the first step? We want to deepen our life with the divine, with God, with Christ. And he said, quote, know thyself. So you're going to go to the desert. Who are you going to take with you into the desert? That's one of the, I think, the um, frightening realities of the longing to go to the desert. And even I think about uh, my own desire to do uh, things like that, like Vision Fast, which I did a few years ago. Last year, I did a, a smaller version of a, a nature fast alone in the wilderness. Well, you get out there and you've brought yourself with you. <laughs> now, you can uh, uh, get around that with all kinds of sort of, I'm enlightened, I'm choosing the higher path and what we might call spiritual bypassing. But most of the time you get out there and you're stuck with... Um, the, the complexity and fullness of your own reality. All your junk goes out there to the desert with you. So St. Anthony, Anthony says, you want to wanna take the path of the, the desert? Uh, you have to know yourself. You have to get to know yourself. So why am I saying all that? The Enneagram is a path, a, a tributary, we might say, to the river of self-knowledge. And if you really want to push that even further, the river of self-knowledge takes you into the ocean of the divine. So uh, in no uncertain terms, self-knowledge, even a tributary, is absolutely essential. Along with, I can think of other uh, tributaries that have helped me. And I'll talk about my relationship with the Enneagram in a second, but... Um, the Myers-Briggs, uh, the big five personality test, which I just took recently, I put in the camp of self-knowledge. I was actually really surprised. You should definitely take it. I took it through um, 
uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, website. It's cheap. It's easy. It's very eye-opening. It's a lot different than Myers-Briggs because sort of Myers-Briggs, you come away and you think, hey, I'm pretty great. The, <laughs> the certain combination of my uh, personality and it affords me a certain, this kind of disposition in the world and um, I'm attracted to this kind of work in the world. But the big five also humiliates you and says, hey, here's your uh, percentile of whatever fill in the blank. And here's, and it's not all rosy and great. Um, so for me, I was super, super low, embarrassingly low in conscientiousness. And if you've ever sent me an email and I haven't sent you an email back, um, I wouldn't blame it on my lack of conscientiousness, but it's an expression of my very low um, numbers <laughs> in conscientiousness. I wouldn't even tell you <laughs> the number because it's so low. Uh, but I was super high in, in openness. So um, anyway, check it out, Big Five. Um, so Myers-Briggs, Big Five. Um, <laughs> for a while when I was... Uh, at Mars Hill and was the pastor just before I sort of entered. I worked there for a while and then I went and taught school for a while and then eventually took the um, lead pastor job there. So um, just before I came in, they were, they meaning the elders and the staff were super into strengths finders. So I had to take this sort of assessment. Again, a tributary to self-knowledge. Only focused on the positives, by the way, um, which has its severe limitations, of course, from a depth psychology point of view. You can't simply, you must look at the shadow if you want to grow up. So in any case, why am I saying that? these are tributaries to self-knowledge? And it is absolutely unbelievable that we live in an age where there are so many resources and tools to put one on the path of self-knowledge. But I mean put one on the path. And I'm already hinting around at what I think some of the limitations of the Enneagram are. It can um, be too, it's, it, it at times is too definitive, and I'll tell you what I mean in a few minutes. So when did I, f I first uh, discover the Enneagram? In 2000, uh, I'd say four or five. And I discovered it through Richard Rohr, who I was super into at the time. He kept talking about it. I was like, what the hell is this? And I didn't even know how to spell it. I'm bad at spelling anyway. And I picked up a copy of his book on the Enneagram and read the entire thing. And I was actually like blown away. First of all, I had never read anything that honored, I guess my way of putting it, was different ways of being in the world. Here are there. I mean, it's almost like saying, whoa, really, there are different kinds of people. And I know that sounds like um, pretty low level, but I was pretty low level when it, when it came to my awareness. I think we all tend to, and I especially did, project onto the world, onto everybody else. They must see reality and engage with reality the way I do. And if they don't, they're just whatever. Like, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I would say. Um, but the, this, this, my introduction to the Enneagram sort of blew the doors open for me. Wow. Okay. Not only do people react, respond um, to the world differently, but also proactively, consciously 
choose to engage with reality differently than I do. And, um, and I went sort of deep, like a lot of people do when they first get into the Enneagram. And, and I was full in taking tests and reading this and, and sort of talking with everyone I knew um, about the Enneagram and who's this number and who's that number and I'm a this and she's a that and and then all the wings and um, and then I read a few other books. I, I, I bumped into Russ Hudson's work who also has done some stuff with Richard Rohr and he's fantastic when it comes to the Enneagram. And of course, there are a bunch of brand new resources and books out that I think are contributing to the conversation. Um, but over time, I had to admit that the Enneagram had some limitations for me. And I'm not sure exactly what it was, but I, I guess as a, maybe a broader reality in my life, I started to wonder more honestly and more deeply, who the hell am I? Who am I? Is there such a thing as a natural Kent? That's when I when I uh, went to therapy a few years ago. That was my one of my one of my questions that would not go away. I think that's a question of the soul. That's what I was getting at. I think uh, like who am I in my essence beneath my personality, my ego, my um, my my felt experience, my family history, my lineage, even my, I don't know, even my DNA, like, like the things that I inherited from my, my parents and grandparents and the stories and traditions that I inherited. What is beneath the surface? Um, what is my own way of looking at things? That is um, from the poet, doesn't matter. <laughs> Maybe it'll come back to me in a second. Or, um, David White, the truth at the center of the image I was born with. When I first heard that poem, man, something woke up. And I was like, God, what the hell is that? The truth at the center of the image I was born with. And things like, I am a four, or um, whatever, any Enneagram number. It, it was almost like, um, it almost felt meaningless. Like, a number? I'm a number? What the hell is that? I'm a number. And because I'm a number, I act in the world in a certain way, and I must relate to the world in a certain way, and here are my hang-ups, and here are my gifts. That, that started to, to not have any pull for me. It just, it was like the carpet was ripped out from underneath me, and maybe I was tumbling into another kind of uh, descent, another kind of canyon, another kind of um, or to use Rilke's line, wandered out onto my, into my heart as onto a vast plain. Out into my heart as onto a vast plain. And there the immense loneliness began. That's Rilke. And that is what it felt like. An immense loneliness. Because Enneagram, like it or not, um, gives you a certain amount of comfort and confidence. I know who I am. And nobody wants to feel the existential dread of, of the immense loneliness, of, of utter emptiness. So anyway, I've been thinking about uh, making this podcast for a while, and I've been nervous about it because 
I want you to hear me say I'm not against the Enneagram. If it attracts you, if you're interested in it, in it, go into it and go into it in a full uh, in a full sense, not just like as a weekend party trick, but get into it and see if it doesn't act like a mirror for who you are, who you've been, how you've behaved in the world, particularly if it reveals something of your hangups, your issues, your subpersonalities, your complexes. Um, but here's the caveat. Don't assume you are a number. Don't assume it, um, it takes you into the deep stream which is what I think the Oracle had in mind and St. Anthony had in mind, of self-knowledge. Think about it much more like a tributary, uh, a contributing factor that brought you further into the deep stream. And the deep stream is pulling you even further into the ocean, where things like Enneagram numbers and Myers-Briggs personality tests and I am a wolf and a beaver and a moose or whatever, um, simply vanish in terms of their, um, your attachment, your sense of identity, your sense of, of groundedness. And I think Carl Jung was helpful to me in some of my own hangups with the Enneagram. And I'm going to, in a second, if I can, if I remember, if I have enough courage, I want to tell you some examples of it going terribly wrong. Um, but, um, so Carl Jung said, I was reading this in, um, I have uh, two books by Jung, uh, just to put my cards on the table. One is uh, a reader, and it's edited by Joseph Campbell, and it's my go-to. I don't really read Carl Jung. I sort of, it's more like I have to study it and read it and reread it. Um, and then I have another one, and it's called um, The Undiscovered Self something like that. And it's a collection of a few uh, talks and lectures and writings that he gave. And I think it's in The Undiscovered Self. I was just reading one day and he was giving advice to physicians or um, psychiatrists, really. Um, early, early practitioners of this emerging discipline, starting with Freud and um, really exploding with Jung and others. And he said, remember, the person in front of you is not a statistic. The person in front of you is a mystery. So let me just repeat that. The person in front of you is not a statistic. The person in front of you is a mystery. So we have to ask a question. What then, what, what, what did Jung mean by a statistic? Well, um, that the energies, that's the way I think about it, uh, personality traits, ways of being in the world, um, archetypes, constellate. Uh, around uh, a certain pattern is the best way to say it. And the person in front of you has a certain pattern. There you are talking to them. Um, you're going deep into fill in the blank and you realize, oh, here's a pattern that has emerged. And it's like an archetype. It's uh, and, and it seems to be manifesting itself um, repeatedly in this person's life. Therefore, they are a, and you fill in the blank. Therefore, they statistically fit the norm of this particular pattern. But the person in front of you is not a pattern. It just means that's, uh, um, 
that's the way you are perceiving them. And, and perhaps even that's the way they are perceiving themselves. And the way subpersonalities and complexes work is they come up out of the basement and tend to, tend to get in the driver's seat. Even though any depth psychologist will tell you there's something more to the person than their, especially extreme ones, their addiction. There's a self beneath the self. And I think something like this exists with the Enneagram. All right, there are patterns. In fact, the way I've come to think about these nine points, which comes from Gurdjieff, really, these nine points is something like archetypes. And in fact, in the absence of the Greek gods, the pantheon, which was which highlighted in all kinds of living dynamic color, the, the huge archetypal energies of life itself, particularly the human life and, and also nature, we could say. The Enneagram is something like that. In the absence of the pantheon, we have these major archetypal patterns that appear like this. In fact, you can go through the Enneagram and come up with Greek gods for each one if you, if you have the, the free time, we could say. Uh, what is this like, you might ask? Um, but in the absence of that, it was, it, it was um, saying it's not that these patterns exist. And in fact, the, one of the mysteries of the Enneagram is that these patterns are related. These energies react with one another in certain cons relatively consistent ways. So a four energy might act um, a, a certain way with the eight or with the one or whatever. Um, by the way, if you don't know anything about the Enneagram, you can just stop listening or you can say, wow, what the hell is this? And start, uh, start diving, diving deep uh, yourself. But um, so anyway, something like uh, these archetypes exist, these energies exist in, in the world. Um, but statistically speaking, I would say you are not a number. And one of the things that, that helped expand my knowledge of this is that locally there's um, a teacher here who is trained in Gurdjieff work and um, is a Sufi and is familiar with the Enneagram, but from, um, I don't know if you would call it a less Western perspective, um, and doesn't use the Enneagram at all like how I was introduced, which is, it's sort of like a personality assessment. He says that the Enneagram is a process, um, is, a, is, a pr is the way process works. And what he means by process is any process at all goes through these nine um, energies and they move in order, roughly. In fact, when I sat in for a teaching on uh, this way of approaching the Enneagram, he was using cooking as an example. Say you want to cook a meal. And he started with one and went all the way around and, and highlighted the areas where this is, where the process tends to get stuck around the three and around the six. So um, I was like, oh my God, what is this? Uh, not anything, it was not anything like a personality assessment. Other than you could say, if you have a certain disposition, um, you're, you might tend to get stuck in certain energy habits and patterns. But that's a lot different than saying, I am a six, or I am a seven, or I am an eight. It's much more like saying, I tend to get stuck there, was a little of what I was taking from this. In fact, I even heard Russ Hudson say on one of his teachings on the Enneagram, your number is what shows up when you don't. 
I was like, oh my God, why didn't anybody tell me this at the beginning? That, or maybe they didn't, I just didn't have ears to hear. And my ego was so excited to finally get named. Like, uh, now I know who I am, damn it. Um, my whole life makes sense. Uh, I couldn't hear the whisper, which is, that's what shows up when you don't. In other words, there's a you beneath that. Or what I like to call in, in soul-oriented work, the voice beneath the voice. There's a voice beneath your voice. There's a self beneath the self. Beneath the egoic persona, beneath the energetic patterns. It doesn't mean that your habits and patterns go away. Say you you tend to um, associate with a particular number. It probably means you're going to have certain kinds of hang-ups until you're in the grave. But just to remind yourself, my Enneagram number is there, shows up when I don't, <laughs> is humbling. And I think now I, we can get into the terrain of what I think can be so unhelpful with it. The ego, as I've said on many of my podcasts, is um, the tip of an iceberg. It's who we think we are. It's our conscious selves, and it's a great gift. Consciousness is a great gift curse of just being a human. We have self-awareness, which is on the path to self-knowledge. And we're conscious of our own mortality and our own uh, will and um, uh, and the future. We're able to imagine, for better or worse, a future and to make choices that we think will affect the future or not affect the future, that kind of thing. It's consciousness. It's who we think we are. And the ego thinks, which is partly how it survives, it knows who it is. I know who I am. And, um, and away I go into life. And one of the dangers with the Enneagram is that it can be like gasoline on the ego's fire, which one of the things that, that is, I think, common among all human beings when it comes to the ego is that, um, it, 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 it's, uh, it has a, a sense of insecurity just beneath its posturing. And its posturing can look like big fat egos, what we might call in the world, strutting around, I know who I am, I'm a genius, blah, 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 um, to very, very um, obviously insecure egos that I'm nobody, I'm nothing, um, I'm not worthy. That can be just as egocentric and narcissistic as its polar opposite. In fact, they're very much the same in many respects. But underneath both of those is a profound insecurity around identity that um, my conscious awareness has something to do with um, my security, the security of my own identity. I must, my, my own conscious awareness is who I think I am. That is paper thin. And so anything that puts pressure on the ego, outside circumstances, your spouse all of a sudden says, I'm out of here and leaves. Your uh, boss says you're fired and when you thought you were the greatest, uh, or whatever the case may be, any any circumstance that puts pressure on on who you think you are and the, and the ego goes into overdrive. Instead of uh, falling on his or her knees, uh, like Isaiah, who has a vision of the divine, falls on his knees, says, woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips. 
which is another way of saying, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And the angel agrees and burns his lips with a coal and says, now, whatever you say from now on is going to be seared and burned by this humiliation and this contact with the divine, with, with, with a reality that you know nothing about. All right. Instead of falling on her knees, the ego does the opposite <laughs> and says, time to rally the troops, time to get everybody in line, take up our positions and defend who we think we are in the world. And the Enneagram in its popular versions tends to do the same thing in my experience, which is you start to naturally, as you grow up, get to the question of well, who am I? What, what's going on? Why, why do things keep happening to me this way? Why do I keep, why do my relationships keep failing? Um, or why do I end up you know, sleeping with the same kind of person? Or why do I keep getting fired? Or why do I keep succeeding? Or um, why do I continue to have a nervous breakdown every time I even think about Thanksgiving dinner. What's going on with me? And you start to get curious. You might say, maybe I need some counseling or some therapy. And, and suddenly you become kind of desperate for resources, which is exactly awesome and part of the longing. You got to follow that longing. The Enneagram, in its most popular and stripped down and I think immature expressions, says, all right, here's a roadmap. Take this test. And now you know who you are. And the ego would love nothing more than to sink its teeth into a number. And I know this from personal experience. When I first read the four, I was like, thank God, that's me. And um, I, I honestly, I mean, it was a bit humbling, I think, reading that, oh, God. But I don't, if you know anything about the four, uh, the individualist, um, is one way of, of, of framing the force. So part of being uh, uh, assaulted by this complex is I really think and thought I'm the only one. I'm the only one that see. I'm so unique, you know, um, and I'm going to do everything in my power to maintain this, this uniqueness to realize that, oh, a lot of people are like this <laughs> is like sort of uh, uh, a bit humiliating saying, oh, I thought, I thought that's what made me so cool, you know? So that was um, humiliating. But on the level of the ego, something like getting my teeth into that and saying, now I know who I am, I am a four, and really combing through the literature of what does that mean to be a four, and then going through my life and saying, that's why I do this, and that's why I do that, and that's why... I do this, and that's why so-and-so does this, and that's why I don't like these kinds of people, and that's why I don't get along with these numbers, and that's why um, I have resistance to th and so forth. And all of a sudden, it's like the, the entire landscape of relationships gets explained. That's its biggest danger. That is pure bullshit, in my opinion. And where this went terribly wrong was at Mars Hill, where suddenly there was like a fire of the Enneagram and everybody knew their numbers. And I promise you, they were beginning to make hiring and firing decisions based on the freaking Enneagram. I don't know if you can be a part of our team because you're, you're a six and so-and-so's an eight and so-and-so's a seven and this person's a one and we just don't think that's a right mixture. If you had a different wing with your sixness, then maybe, but that's not really, and I, that's the level we had gone to. That is so far from Carl Jung saying the person in front of you is a mystery. They're not a statistic. They're not a number. This is insanity, my friends. 
when we're dealing with it on that level. Which is why I think the Enneagram, at least as Richard Rohr explained it, was not to be found in books, <laughs> was not to be uh, disseminated among the masses, was a part of a kind of wisdom tradition. And any kind of wisdom tradition you learn very slowly over time and requires a certain amount of maturity to even hold the information. And I'm telling you, Kent Dobson in his late, let's see, how old would I have been? I guess I was around 30 when I first discovered it, was too wildly immature to make any sense of it. My ego was on high alert for any kinds of insecurities and just needed to get its teeth into some kind of system to make sense of the confusion of my own life and to explain away people I didn't like. Um, yeah, that's called a, a disaster. The, and, and to add to the disaster, it was hyper-spiritual. There's nothing worse than hyper-spiritual language um, and a kind of pseudo-enlightenment to insulate you from the world and from the realities of of the world and from the realities of your own inconsistencies. So, uh, yeah, okay, time out. Let's um, review. I'm talking to myself. Kent, review what you think you've said so far. Number one, the Enneagram can be a tool, a tributary to the stream of self-knowledge, which is a critical, deeply human, and important path, the psycho-spiritual path of growing up and of discovering the deep self, the self beneath the self, the voice beneath the voice. Something like the Enneagram can help you, can help kickstart the descent um, down the tumbling stre uh, stream into the broader river. Not to make too much of the metaphor. Um, but in the hands of the immature, which many of us are, it can be a wildly unhelpful tool toward bolstering the ego, to getting on the ego side and to explaining the world away and your world away. This is why I do what I do and really can become an excuse for bad behavior. And I have been in meetings with people when they say the reason why I didn't do that is because I'm a five. I don't do that. That kind of limitation, um, I think, is, uh, is the opposite of, of growth, is what happens. Maybe like to, to use the uh, Gurdjieff wheel, Enneagram as process, that's when your number comes up, takes hold of you, and shows up when you don't and refuses to let the process of growth continue. And there you are stuck in your limited view of the world, which you're now calling a number. Big time temptation. And I have done this. I'm not, I'm not sort of blaming or shaming or, or, or you know, talking about anything that I haven't done myself. I have used my own number as an excuse for bad behavior. You know, I don't know how you feel about the work of Jordan Peterson, He's a complex, controversial, very interesting figure, and I continue to be fascinated about, about what he's doing in the world. But one of the things that I think is so amazing, um, and this is only maybe one small percentage of the things that he's up to, is, is I, I hear him saying in many different 
uh, ways, take responsibility for your life. Stop making excuses. Make your bed. Start on the most basic level of responsibility. And I, I really think that's a needed message in, in our world. Um, I, I suppose it, it might have a dark side too, but let's leave that aside f- for a moment. Make your bed. Take responsibility. Know thyself. And and part of that means um, not coming up with highly sophisticated spiritual ex- excuses for bad behavior, which I have seen in practice again and again, the Enneagram do for people. Um, and what is the third thing um, I think I'm trying to say? I think from time to time we need a reminder that we are a mystery unto ourselves. And one of the quickest ways to deepen into this reality is to think about the people you love the most, your children, your spouse, your partner, your best friend. And in part, we would say, I know this person. I know my spouse. But um, any kind of long-term relationship is just a series of thresholds into a deeper awareness that I really don't know this person as well as I thought. That's what a long-term relationship looks like. Wow, I thought I had you figured out, and I really didn't. And it turns out there's a lot more there, I think positive and negative, or what I may, what I might like to call um, sinister and golden. That's more Jungian shadow language, sinister and golden dimensions of the mystery of this human being that I didn't even see at the beginning. In fact, I was so filled with projections and um, false assumptions and was worshiping a false god, an idol of my own making that I called you. That particularly happens in, in all intimate relationships. That um, when that idol collapses and when, like in the Moses story, when they crush up that idol, the golden calf, and make everybody drink it, it tastes bitter. And it's bitter because you're swallowing your own illusions. And, um, and then who stands before you now? Who, who is this person that I've said yes to, that I said till death do us part, or my own child, that I said yes to raising through thick and thin, through the, the minefield of adolescence, um, which lasts from about 15 to 29. Who is this person? Um, that's bumping into the mystery. And actually, the I think a, a sign of great maturity, not that all relationships always have to last forever. They don't. That's part of the, um, the life-death-life cycle of all things. But a mature person can withstand a series of thresholds, a series of illusions dissolving. So that's what's true between you and the other. And the same is true between you and the other of, of your deep self. It seems like psycho-spiritual growth is a series of the same kinds of thresholds, where it's something like, I thought I knew who I was, now what? And I think my first brush with the Enneagram was like that. I thought I knew kind of what I was about. And it was a massive, earth-shattering threshold to say, wow, there are patterns here? Wow, there are propensities here? Wow, there are even sins here? That's one of the things I like about Richard Rohr. He sort of talks about... um, the sin, and I know modern people don't like that word. I, I 
tend to be a, a defender of all ancient language and the wisdom tradition in and of itself, and I think it has something to offer. Miss the mark. So we t I tend to miss the mark in certain ways, certain patterns that have to do with this constellation of archetypal energies, which we now call a number. So um, massive threshold to I, and, and crossing that into deeper mysteries. Wow, I'm a mystery to myself. But I just might add um, a word of caution. Don't think for a minute you've crossed the final threshold. It's a tributary. Um, for some people, very worthwhile. For other people, it might not even ring true. So um, there, there are other tributaries to know thyself. But it's a tributary to the mystery of your own existence. And the question is something like, and now what? And um, if you find yourself um, doing things like dividing the world up into numbers, if you find yourself as a parent with your seven-year-old saying, oh, they're clearly a seven, I'd like to say you have lost the plot. Um, if you find your, your work life a series of numbers, and so-and-so's a one, and so-and-so's an eight, and, so and, and everything is divided up into c categories, I'd, I might suggest that you've lost the plot. You've forgotten that you are a mystery to yourself, and the person in front of you is a mystery. So that, I think, is my biggest word of caution. That's why I'm saying step away from the Enneagram. All I'm saying is get some distance, some perspective. Hold it like dust in the hand. Hold it like, uh, um, like the wind and um, with some non-attachment. Maybe that's, maybe that's the clue to when the ego is in charge. Um, it has to do with the, the level and seriousness of your attachment to it. And I felt this way too, because I remember um, when I was super like Enneagram man and um, someone would challenge, either challenge my number. <laughs> so someone would say, actually, I think you're a this, you know. Um, or challenge um, its usefulness in general, I'm immediately defensive. Now, if you would stop me and say, are you being defensive? I say, hell no, there's not a defensive bone in my body. That's called denial, um, by the way. And But just extremely defensive. Oh, I am definitely this. I have to be this. There's no way I'm that. The one thing I know about myself is I'm not a, an eight or a whatever, fill in the blank. Then you know the ego um, is is... Uh, the captain of the ship here. And it's simply using this sophisticated and ancient tool um, to, for its own uh, means of self-existence. Then you've lost the plot. So I know that feeling. So maybe I ought to end with a poem, speaking of mystery and thresholds and deepening the ongoing and unfolding opportunity of self-discovery and self-knowledge, which, again, to repeat what I said before, takes us into the river and into the ocean of the divine, the mystery of all things, into the depths of the sea that seems to have no bottom, where, where all categories and, um, and names and numbers dissolve in a sea of emptiness. That's a little of what I mean by the divine 
ocean. And I was thinking of the one of my favorite poems by Adrian Rich, a very short poem, which seems to fit almost any context of, uh, of discovery and movement from the known to the unknown. And I might even say that one clue that you're on the big path, the path of soul discovery, of, um, of soul descent, um, and or both uh, the path of ascent, transcendence, union, uh, two sides of the same coin is what I'm saying, uh, is an increased attraction to the unknown and to a letting go of forms and to a letting go of attachment to forms and even names. And, um, and that's what I hear a bit in this poem called Perspective Immigrants Please Note. What a timely poem with all the madness in our country's uh, obsession with immigrants and recent immigrants. And I actually agree, there is a kind of crisis happening. It's a crisis of, of the, the, the heart, I won't even say the soul, but the heart of, of the United States, a country of immigrants. Something is at, is at stake, and there's something profound about the immigrant as an archetype, as an image, that always hierarchies end up uh, producing and hierarchy can often have a place. There's a, even a kind of biological hierarchy. I'm not anti-hierarchy. I'm not, I'm not put myself in that kind of simplistic camp. But all hierarchies, especially hierarchical structures of power, the bottom end of the hierarchy suffers, always. It's part of why they're always collapsing, falling apart, and rebuilding. Sometimes rebuilding healthier uh, forms of structure. And that's part of the big part of the biblical tradition. The biblical story is the collapse and renewal of these structures, always because the poor, the widow, the alien, the alien, the immigrant, the orphan, uh, the underside of society is suffering. That's the entire Exodus story in a nutshell. The divine uh, co-creates, and I mean that seriously, co-creates, doesn't even make it happen with the slaves, the underbelly of society, um, a kind of new society up out of the ashes of, of this dominant and bitter and self-preserving uh, culture. So in, in any ways, in any case, the immigrant is always crossing our borders and is challenging who we think we are. I know who I am. And then someone walks across into my lawn and I don't know who I am anymore. The immigrant is always doing such a thing. In fact, um, the Bible has one tiny obscure, um, almost aside in the book of Genesis. Uh, Joseph, who goes high up in the, in the leadership in uh, Egypt, 
invites his whole family during a famine and says, hey, come and live in Egypt. I work for the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh will take care of you. And when the Pharaoh asks you, what do you do for a living? Tell him, quote, you're shepherds, because shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. And, and thus meaning, Pharaoh will say, go live over there in such and such a land away from us. We have kind of a territory where we like shepherds to roam around because we don't like them. What do we not like about them? They are immigrants. <laughs> they roam. They move from place to place. In dire times, they cross borders. And that threatens our sense of security and our sense of identity. So the immigrant is an ancient, ancient archetype and carries with it a kind of challenge to the status quo. And also, in a psycho-spiritual sense, the image of the immigrant is what happens to us when we start to feel that deep and existential insecurity. I don't know who I am. And at that point, we're given a kind of choice. Do we stay in the territory that we know, in the country we know, the land we know, with our name, and do we gather up resources that can keep us from crossing the border? And that can be anything from your Myers-Briggs to your Strengths Finders to your Enneagram number. And saying, no, it's time to circle the wagons and really buckle down and double down on, on who I think I am in the world. Or do I have the courage, um, and may not even be just courage, but even a combination of courage and fear that says, I'm going to walk toward the unknown. And one of the scary things that all wisdom traditions teach, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, um, and then all of the more obscure indigenous spiritual, spiritual traditions, which I'm not an expert, I'm more of a, a, a fan of uh, comparative spirituality and religion than I am a pure expert, seem to suggest that spiritual growth looks like moving into the unknown as a kind of cycle. And... Um, even uh, The Cloud of Unknowing, fantastic book of Christian spirituality written in English by an unknown author, says if we want to, to grow up, I'm paraphrasing, we must move into the cloud of forgetfulness. Not only do we have to go toward the unknowing, the unknown, but we have to enter the cloud of forgetfulness. We have to forget that we think we know who we are and the way things work and who God is. If you're in the in a, if that's something you're comfortable with, I know who God is. I know the way God works. Well, um, that's to stay on one side of the border. But how might we grow up and out of that? We must become immigrants. So she writes this poem. Adrian Rich writes this poem that is sort of advice for the immigrants. And let me read it to you. Either you will go through this door or you will not go through. So nobody's going to force you, make you, twist your arm. The kind of door she's talking about, either you will go through this door or you will not go through. If you go through, there is always the risk of remembering your name. There's always the risk of remembering your name if you go through this door, which I think she's saying something like, entering deeper waters, that there's a name beneath your name. 
And I think the word remembering is so provocative because the opposite of remembering is, is dismembering, which is what our contemporary life is like. It has been dismembered. We have been torn to shreds. We don't know who we are anymore as a country, as a civilization, um, as human beings on the earth. We don't know who we are from a religious point of view. Our, our um, doctrines and churches have been ripped to shreds. The, um, even the ar- big archetypal patterns like, like the Christ or the Buddha seem to be fragmented and thrown and cast to the wind, dismembered, torn to shreds, and there's bits and pieces lying everywhere. And she says, if you go through this door, there's always the risk of remembering putting back together somehow to remember your name, the name beneath your name, I'm I'm just adding. And then she says, things look at you doubly and you must look back and let them happen, which is one of the more mysterious sort of paragraphs in here. Things look at you doubly and you must look back and let let them happen. Maybe it's like a hall of mirrors and you're not exactly sure what's happening and you see something and it mirrors back to you something and you mirror back something to the something and there's it's kind of like a dual images appearing and maybe that's part of the confusion of the time period of walking through the door and risking remembering your name and you must let this happen. And then she says, if you do not go through, it is possible to live worthily. Which is pretty generous. Hey, you can live a worthy life. She says, to maintain your attitudes, to hold your position, and to die bravely. If you do not go through, it is possible to live worthily. To maintain your attitudes, to hold your position, to die bravely. So it's possible to not go through and maintain to your grave I am an Enneagram 3. And you're going to put that on your tombstone. I did it. I maintained my attitudes. I held my position. I died bravely as only a 3 would die. But, she goes on, but much will blind you. Much will evade you. At what cost, who knows? At what cost, who knows? It's like Jesus saying, what if you gain the whole world and forfeited your soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? What if you have everything you want and you have done a magnificent and noble and brave job of not only constructing an ego, but constructing scaffolding around the ego to protect the ego? At what cost? The cost of remembering your name or your soul. Much will blind you. Much will evade you at what cost, who knows? The door itself makes no promises. It is only a door. And there she leaves the reader. The door itself makes no promises. It is only a door. So either you will walk through or you will not walk through. And I think that's part of um, maybe on one hand, we're being invited to know ourselves. And on the other hand, we're being invited to forget ourselves, Um, to let go, to practice non-attachment with the other hand. And I think there's something strange about the end of this poem that uh, soul work, psychospiritual work of any depth 
um, even truly religious work, religio, to bind, to, to put back together, which is like remembering. It's not, um, in my experience, it's not a five-step process that is linear always. There are patterns, um, but it doesn't manufacture anything. It's not like it's not like saying, if you do this, then this, which is why I think she leaves us with even a greater sense of mystery at the end of this poem. The door itself, the threshold, doesn't make any promises. It doesn't guarantee um, happiness, fulfillment. It's just a door. And either we can walk through it or not walk through it. It's the invitation. So I've hope. I hope in this podcast I, I stirred up some trouble. That was my aim. And, um, and I'm, tr I'm trying to stir up trouble as, um, as a fellow companion on the psycho-spiritual path, as a fellow companion in, in the process of, of descent, as a fellow companion in the process of taking seriously um, meaning, and the pursuit of meaning. That's actually what I think of as a religious life, the, the pursuit of meaning. And, um, but we need some trouble uh, because the ego is so uh, easily duped, and I'm speaking from personal experience, that we need a thorn in our flesh that continues to say something like, uh, don't get ahead of yourself. Um, Maybe it's time to fall down on your knees again like Isaiah and say, woe is me, I am a person of unclean lips. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about with myself or other people. We need moments like that. And um, yeah, so I hope something in here you've, you've found uh, at least helpful. And for some of you challenging, maybe. Um, and thank you for listening. Thank you for, I don't know, spending your time with me on this podcast. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so by becoming a, a patron. And I really want to thank my patrons. It is incredible to have a little bit of support on this path. And um, you can do so at my website or patreon.com forward slash Kent Dobson. Any small amount helps me stay independent, uh, like an independent artist. And I promise to keep generating um, content to the best of my ability and uh, to contribute in my own way to the unfolding uh, conversation. So um, yeah, uh, that's what I got for you. Peace. <laughs>